Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, Andrew, I found another thing we can agree on besides Janine Garofalo's baby bangs. <laughs> what was your favorite 90s show on MTV? And please don't say undressed because I can't get fired today. I feel like we should do on the count of three because we're both going to have the same one. I know we are. Are you sure? Okay, let's find out. One, two, three. Three, House, House of, of Style. style. <gasps> I knew it. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford. Welcome to the summer edition of House of Style. I was actually torn, though. Celebrity Deathmatch is so amazing. Remember when they pitted Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen against the Osborne kids? <laughs> hey, Smelly Kelly. Olsen twin powers, activate! And like, can we just say Dr. Drew is a zaddy? Total zaddy. We used MTV in the 90s the way we use Instagram today. Like, it's how we stayed current. It's how we knew what to wear. So with that in mind, today on People in the 90s, we're talking about our issue from April 25th, 1994. Andrew, that was actually our in memoriam issue for Kurt Cobain, who died of suicide a couple weeks earlier on April 5th. But I want to talk about this issue because it was MTV. They broke the story. Hi, I'm Kurt Loder with an MTV News special report on a very sad day. Kurt Cobain, the leader of one of rock's most gifted and promising bands, Nirvana, is dead. And this is the story as we know it so far. It was such a sad time. I'm glad we're talking about it, though. You know, I think it's important. I think at the time it was shocking and it's definitely defined today as a where were you when that happened moment. With all of our talk today about, you know, being open about where you're at, if you're experiencing mental illness, it's hard not to look back on like what could have been done and if this had been preventable. But this was such a, a huge moment. And this was you know, certainly an, an obit cover for us. And I think it's important just to stop for a second and just acknowledge what he meant to a huge, huge amount of people. And just to take everyone back to April 1994, that week for weddings and a funeral was number one at the box office. The first time in my whole life I realized I totally and utterly loved one person. R. Kelly's Bump and Grinds was in its third week at number one on the Billboard charts. Okay, that's just awkward. We're going to move right past that. Yeah. Moving right along. And our guest, Bill Bellamy, was the host of MTV Jams, and he was on tour with Janet Jackson at the time. And he's going to talk to us today about what it was like to be at MTV and to interview Kurt Cobain. I'm sitting there looking at this man going, this dude, does he know he's huge? Does he know? And also, like, he and Janet were kind of tight, I heard. So I kind of need to hear all about that. Well, you know there's nothing we love more than 30-year-old hot goss. That's our beat, if you will. <laughs> we're going to bring it. Anyway, I'm Jason Cheeler, Deputy West Coast Editor at People Magazine. And I'm Andrea Laventhal, Style and Beauty Director at People Magazine. And this is People in the 90s, where each week we dive deep into an issue of People Magazine from the best era ever. Hello, Andrea. Hi, Jason. What's going on? What's happening? So as a lot of people say, like, and this is not breaking news, I did not invent this, but you know, MTV did not suck in the 90s, right? I mean, the network was founded in 81. And by the 90s, it was more than just music television. And in fact, it was nearly like social conscience television, right? Yeah, it was basically where I got my news, my entertainment, and my culture. 
Yeah, it's like in a lot of that, we have to kind of like tip our hats to Kurt Loder, who like, you know, came over from Rolling Stone, thanks to This Week in Rock, in that big at Choose or Lose, which like a run up to the 92 election. Hi, I'm Tabitha Soren. This is Facing the Future with Bill Clinton, MTV's first presidential forum. Joining- the network began to truly engage our generation, right? Yeah, it became much more about just like music videos and they did these movements and and took on causes, whether it was voting. And then, you know, later on with the real world, they took on issues like homosexuality, AIDS, abortion, religion, the big stuff that really no one else was doing for this young generation. They also brought us adult cartoons such as Beavis and Butthead and Daria. So, you know, they were kind of all over the map and a little bit of something for everyone. I mean, I vividly remember Bill Clinton being asked boxers or briefs. I do want to take an opportunity to come clean on a statement I made earlier this week. In an appearance on MTV, I was asked a question about my undergarments. More specifically, whether I wore boxers or briefs. Most iconic candidate rounds of questioning of all time. I answered, I wear briefs. I want you to know tonight that I regret that deeply. For a short time during my youth, I did in fact also wear boxer shorts. And you know, Tabitha Sorin, okay, deep breath, she wrote an op-ed for, I believe it was the New York Times, not too long ago, saying that it was potentially a mistake, choose or lose, because it turns politics into the showbiz we have now. So just something else to think about. She actually regrets it. But I say better to engage a generation and get them out to vote than to ignore them completely, Tabitha. Anyway, just had to share that. <laughs> We're going to air our grievances. No, but the mid-90s, it was like just so angsty and it completely and totally defined the time. And there were great shows. Like, what did you watch? Like, I watched TRL, of course. I watched anything. What, what was Dr. Drew on? I just like Dr. Drew. What was that? That called? was Loveline. Oh, my God. Loveline. Again, tackling things that other people were not talking to young people about. So mm. very forward thinking, you know, sandwiched again between Beavis and Butthead and Celebrity Deathmatch. You had these more serious shows. I, as we said earlier, loved House of Style, but fashion is culture, you know? No, yeah, okay, for, for sure. And like if you, you're either getting on Elsa Clinch on CNN or you're getting it from Cindy Crawford. So they're singled out, which like that's where we found Jenny McCarthy, right? Yeah. And she totally manhandled men, which sounds silly. But when you think back at the time, you had this loud, funny, brash, hot girl. So it, she wasn't just hot. She was loud. She actually spoke and she spoke loudly and obnoxiously. Remember the candies ad with her on the toilet? <laughs> It was like this whole new... Wait, was that her or Carmen Electra? Well, Carmen Electra then took over for Jenny McCarthy. Think about shows like The Grind, Eric Knees from The Grind, which was how else did you know how to dance if you didn't watch The Grind? First of all, you had to dance in a bathing suit. Very important. And it was literally a show where you watched people dance. I... Loved it. Did you ever do the grind workout? I didn't do the grind workout. Look, I love Eric Nees. Like, he was so hot. There's probably a poster of Eric Nees, you know, at every gay bar throughout the Mid-South, for sure. Did you ever see his posters where he's, like, holding two tires or something? Um, I'm not familiar with that one, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's black and white, and Eric Nees, like, has a tire in each arm, I think. Anyway. Sure. Anyway, it's very, like, low-rent gay bar. That's, like, an an oeuvre. (laughs) Producer Chris, please track down that poster. (laughs) Thank you. Am I the only one who's had this experience? It's like the pride flag of Southern (laughs) Arts. Okay. 
anyway, which actually is a nice segue, if, if disrespectfully, to the real world, because we can't really get out of MTV in the 90s without talking about the real world, because it did, you know, completely define the network in so many ways, because I, I don't know about you, but the San Francisco cast was just epic in so many good and bad ways for me. A lot of people say that was the first time they were introduced to a person on television, a real person with AIDS. And that yeah. was groundbreaking and frankly, kind of still is. Even President Clinton acknowledged Pedro Zamora and his play and everything he did. I found it very interesting, educational, sad. I also found it fascinating that I learned what a bike messenger was, thanks to the, the disgustingness of Puck, you know? So it was like highbrow, lowbrow, you know? Well, for sure. And who was like that Rachel person who ended up on The View and, and Fox News now? She was like Southern and conservative, but compassionate. Um, Rachel Campos, who is now Rachel Campos Duffy, because she married another real worlder, Sean Duffy. They had like 15 children and he's in politics too. So it was like a, a the bachelor before the bachelor. They had like real world nation. You know how they have bachelor nation? The real world had that way before the bachelor because then it spun off into road rules and then all the people started competing and mashing. I mean, that was a real community, if you will. It's I missed all of that. I mean, like I think Real World San Francisco was maybe the last time I ever watched reality television. I've never even watched a single episode of The Bachelor. Please don't fire me. Do you remember the Seattle season? I believe it was 1998. No. OK, so that season... There was a character named Irene, okay? And Irene's claim to fame was that she had very, very curly hair and she was quirky. She went to Georgetown. Oh, she had Lyme disease, which was also something we learned about <laughs> thanks to MTV. For real. She was bravely living with Lyme disease. But really, forget the lie. It was that very curly hair. And on one episode, she showed us her hair routine, which as a budding beauty editor was fascinating to me. And I will never forget, she had a giant tub, like a value-sized tub of Paul Mitchell gel. And she would pump it out and coat her curls with it. And honestly, beauty influencer. There's like one person listening who will remember that moment. And I just wanted you to know, I see you, I feel you. Anyway, moving on. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing your journey with Lyme disease and curly hair. Where is the Presidential Medal of Freedom? To find out what happens what? when people stop being polite. And start getting real. The real world. While the network like had all of that stuff, there were the personalities really who defined the network, right? Who were you like living for VJ wise? I'm going with Serena Altschul and not just because she was really pretty and kind of a socialite. She's what she was kind of like an Anderson Cooper type thing, like, like super prominent, like rich family. But you're like, don't you have some money? Why are you working? And today she's on my favorite show of all time, CBS Sunday morning. I just loved that she had this like very serious, but I don't know. There was like a little playful vibe to her. She's a little uptown, downtown. I dug her. Who did you like, Jason? Oh, so like, I, I kind of liked Totally Polly. I like Polly Shore. Really? <laughs> I don't see that for you. That surprises me. I kind of like Polly Shore. I thought Ananda was really cool. Oh my God. So cool. She had the best style. This was a little 80s, but of course I love downtown Julie Brown. And then yeah, I love the other Julie Brown too, but she was definitely 80s. And then, I mean, who is the guy like with the long hair and he kind of looked like he could have been in Van Halen? I believe you're referring to Adam Curry. Yes, that guy. I found some fun trivia about him. Do you want to hear it? Oh my God, tell me. Apparently 
He bought the domain MTV.com in 1993. Are you telling us that he bought MTV.com and ransomed it off to MTV? Yeah, basically, he sold his own web design company in 1999 that netted him enough cash to buy a Belgian castle and retire, according to the LA Times. So he's really should be everyone's favorite. He's basically the um, Elon Musk of MTV. So he's now my life coach. And look, like, you know what, who do I really love? Because, and I'm not just saying this because he's coming on the show, but like, we really tried hard to get him. Like Bill Bellamy was so cool. He was, he's a lot of firsts at MTV, but he really like, you know, brought an entire new generation. And for a lot of people, like he likes to say he, he knows and he kind of like laughs at it, but it's true. He's like, look, I was for a lot of people. I was their first black friend. He was the coolest. I remember watching him on MTV Beach House and he had such a great energy. You know, they all were young and cool and fun, but he really had this like very cool. You felt like who you saw on the air was, you know, who you would get in real life. And he seemed genuinely excited to be everywhere he was, which made sense because he was usually at the MTV Beach House and then like hanging out with the biggest celebrities of our time. Well, Bill Bellamy is going to take us back to that time. He's going to take us back to MTV throughout the 90s. And, and look, he started off in stand-up. He, he got a start on Def Comedy Jam. Like one night when Martin Lawrence was hosting Def Comedy Jam, you know, Bellamy got a start in comedy there. And he moved over to MTV to be a VJ. He was in ultimate 90s movies like Any Given Sunday and Who's the Man, How to Be a Player, Love Jones. He also, it should be noted, appeared in two videos on MTV, one for DeBrat and one, unbelievably enough, for Tupac. So here he is, Bill Bellamy. Bill, we're so appreciative. I know you're currently filming a sequel or a reimagining, according to The Hollywood Reporter, to House Party, which is perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. As it's a 90s podcast, we definitely want to talk about your time on Def Comedy Jam and MTV. And you are like the most highly qualified person to be on this podcast we've had yet. But before we get to all that, my wonderful co-host here, she has a very important question for you that involves Rutgers University. Well, it's just that you're our first guest who's also a New Jersey native like myself. Are you Jersey too? I am Jersey and I saw that you went to Seton Hall Prep. Yes, ma'am. Yes, indeed. And it's not just not so much a question as it is a statement, just to let you know, I grew up not too far from there. I was born in West Orange. Yes, right there. And Seton Hall Prep boys, as far as I was concerned, were the only boys. <laughs> You know, we did all right. We did all right. Cute in that little uniform, I remember. <laughs> and then you went to Rutgers. So I love that you kept it Jersey. Yeah, we got to give love. I was kind of like the, you know, the Rutgers, you know, homegrown comedian. I love that. And then next thing you know, you're on Deaf Comedy Jam, coining the phrase booty call, oh. and you're in Wikipedia hey. history for eternity. Come on now. Booty call. The reason why that blew up, I think, in my opinion, was one, the joke was really, really funny, but the phrase was so easy. You know, when I was doing it, when I was doing it in the clubs, people started smiling because they're like, that's what it is. (laughs) (laughs) But me just thinking fast like a comedian, I was like, I'm going to make me a booty call. And back then, you know, it was really what it was. You know, you calling girls on the phone. You're like, hello. You know, you're like, hello. Hello. No. Okay. Hello. Hello. You know, you're like always, you know, and you're striking out. You, you, you're you like, okay, let me see if Keisha's home. Hello. Oh, Keisha, what's up, babe? You know, so, <laughs> and so the joke really was about 
about guys when, you know, they're trying to meet chicks and, you know, when you call in the booty, you want the booty to come by, you know, now they got Tinder, they're cheating, but you know, back in the day you had to really make the call. Now you can swipe left, swipe right. You get to work for it. Right. Like we had to get the number. Now you just see a picture and you swipe. I was watching this 1994 Showtime special, which is in fact, I think was called booty call. And like the, the opening was amazing. Mm-hmm. You were in an incredible mm-hmm. apricot three-piece suit i must say like looking yes. amazing <laughs> Apricot, yeah, you're right. i would maybe wonder though about booty calling like it is so in the nomenclature it's nearly a cliche at this point bill bill who look it's bill bellamy i'm getting ready to do a special and i think that you uh-uh, need to call me i don't me. think so i know this ain't no booty call bill bellamy damn did you ever even think about trademarking it i mean it, it was yours yeah at the time you know i wasn't you know, thinking of it like that. I, I was just thinking of my joke. I didn't realize the catch, the phrase would catch on to become like, like you said, a normal word that people know what it is now. So booty call was just a clever way to say, you know, you're trying to get a girl to come by, you know, and they, but who knew that everybody was going to lock in on it? I'm, I probably right now would be on a spaceship if I trademarked it. <laughs> With Richard Branson. Oh, yeah. You'd be in the billionaire space race right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah right. I'd, be, I'd be out there with Elon Musk somewhere. Hey, man, what are we doing? What are we doing today? So we just recently talked to one of your colleagues, Sherry Shepard, who is also mm-hmm. a comedian coming up in the 90s about Def Comedy Jam and all the different people back then. What was it like for you? What did it mean to you? to be part of that? Well, I knew it was going to be huge. Um, the buzz about it, what it was doing for the uh, for the culture of black comedians um, at that time, HBO was really pushing the envelope. Like it was the place to be. HBO was like Netflix is today, right? So for a comedian to be on HBO, you were going to be seen by millions. That's what was so bomb about it. And for all of the comics at that time, if you got on there, that meant you were a top pick in the country, right? And then if you went on there and you mm. killed it, mm. it's lights out. That's why it was so important. You had like eight minutes to do everything you could to be the funniest comedian ever, right? And so when I got on there and I was literally the first comic on the first show, so they used my set as the promo for the show. It was crazy. They got this new car alarm to be out in 92, right? If they steal your car, the car alarm will call your house. I said to myself, imagine this, right? Saturday night, about four o'clock in the morning, you sleep. It's like, (sighs) hello? Yo, Bill, wake up. (laughs) Who is it? It's the car, man. (laughs) They got me down here taking out the radio and everything. (laughs) All right, all right, where you at? I don't know. You better hurry up. What's interesting to, to think about Def Comedy Jam now and, and the legacy of it, like, look, it was half hour, you know, it, it, and it was 92 to 97, and it was funny, like, to be sure, and pretty racy. Raunchy, and it could be raunchy, too. Yeah, you could be racy, yes. Yeah, pretty, pretty sure. But, but also, here's the thing, but also incredibly topical. I mean, we're talking, you guys discussed AIDS, police brutality, racism, cultural differences, you know, tensions, you know, between black women and black men. I mean, like, all of this was explored, and, and, and how important that was in the 90s and also like how super relevant unfortunately all of that is today yeah um it it, it was really one of those things when you go back and you watch those sets of all the comedians guys and girls we really really were like the voices of the culture we were you know we were topical 
we were talking about subject matters that, you know, were like were really, really in the news and and made it funny, you know? And that's what was the beauty of, of being a really great comic is like we take the scope or the lens of the world and we bring it to the stage and we make it funny from our perspective, right? And um, that was a place where you could do whatever subject. Mm. You know, you on network TV, you can't just say mm. anything. Like I remember when I was hosting Last Comic Standard, they screened every joke. They were like, well, so Bill, what, 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 what were you gonna say about that? That's my white voice. <laughs> I got that. And I like this. So so when you say that, Joe, what what are you pertaining to? Break it down because we the sponsors might have a problem. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but on HBO, you can say whatever. That was what was so bomb. <laughs> so then you continued to blow up, right? You were auditioning mm-hmm. for movies and MTV came about. And I was listening to you do a podcast earlier where you were talking about MTV life and like the beach house and then the ski house, which people forgot about. What budget did MTV have in the 90s? Like what was happening with travel? I mean, for real, I forgot there was a ski house too. Yeah, we had the, we we called it Mount MTV. And so they had money, man. You know, they paid me very well. And uh, they were, they were dumping money into the network because they believed that it was going to, you know, sort of be the voice of the culture. And on top of that, it was driving music. Like now people might not even be checking for MTV, but at that time, if you were a music label, if you were an artist, a producer, you wanted your stuff played on MTV. It was no question. If you wanted to blow up, you had to be on MTV. So we were just creating different venues within the network for people to watch. So we had the beach house, like you said, we had the ski house, we had rock and job. I remember all of these. Just think of all these little things we were doing. Yeah. We had rock and job basketball, football, softball. We we had a mixture of sports. So you had athletes coming by, you had artists coming by. We were like the coolest house on the block, so to speak. And that's why I think they put so much money into it. And that imprint spread across the country. Like a guy like Bill Bellamy became a household name because kids were like, yo, that's a cool black guy. Like I I don't have a, a black guy in my neighborhood like that. But if I did, it would be Bill Bellamy, right? Like I was like, I was like a doll. <laughs> well, you, well, you were because you, I mean, to be fair, you did break the color barrier at MTV, right? Yeah. Did you stop and mark that moment? Yeah, because it was a concerted effort with the network to change the narrative, right? So they, they opened up the music gates. They opened up their perspective on color, right? So you had a guy who fit the right mold for them moving forward where, you know, we had Added Lover and Dr. Dre doing yo MTV raps, but then I was doing MTV jams in spring break and doing all these different things that they weren't doing before. So when I went to Daytona beach, all these white kids were coming from everywhere. They were traveling to come Mm -hmm. to our spring break from different universities. Like I met kids from University of Kentucky for the first time, Indiana, Mm -hmm. Missouri. It was like kids I was meeting that I would have never met and they all came to party with us because they were like, dude, we're going to be here. We we, we drove here 18 hours, four of us in a car to come here and be here for the weekend. And it was thousands of fun kids that, you know, came to have the experience of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So that to me, when you think about fun, you think about experience, you think about music, the 90s to me is is epic. <laughs> Who are some of your most memorable 
interviews that you still think about and are like, I can't believe I interviewed fill in the blank. I want to hear you talk about Kurt Cobain, especially like you, I mean, you interviewed Kurt Cobain at the, at the beach house. He's one of my top fives. Yeah. Kurt, Kurt was the first person that I ever met that was the anti rock star, rock star. And by that, I mean, he had such a very chill demeanor and he was really shy which was awkwardly weird for me because i thought he'd be like yeah man you know i do my music i ride you know he had to like he had to like greasy hair he's the first person i ever seen that was a straight up rock star but look poor i was like he need to get some more money no he need to make some more money because <laughs> he had like on dirty chucks jeans and a sweater that like you could have got from a thrift store i was like i thought they make money and, and then that sweater was recently auctioned for like a quick google provides three hundred and thirty four thousand dollars. so someone made money dog i'm not making this up bro it's probably the sweater interview with me oh i, th- I think and it was it was the striped one right with the holes in it the striped sweater <laughs> yep and so i'm sitting there looking at this man going this dude does he know he's huge does he know? Because Courtney at the time was doing all the talking. Mm. The, another top one was Janet Jackson. Mm. And because for all the things that Beyonce is doing that is fantastic, in the 90s, the person that was doing the exact same thing was Janet Jackson. Totally. I think Jason's working on a thesis about this. I'm with you a thousand percent. You have no idea how huge Janet Jackson was in this span of 10 years. And so I am in awe of this stuff, right? And I couldn't believe that she was a fan of me, but it came out awkwardly. Yes, I remember this. Because everybody used to be like, yo, what's going on with Janet and Bill? People was doing this when they watch the TV. There was heat there. There was some traction. I'll be honest with you. It was something going on. It was weird because it was like she was kind of shy about it, but her flirty ways showed that she dug me more than just a little. It was crazy. She used to always call me. Oh, my me. God. Yeah, she would just call me and be like, Bill, come to the beach. She booty called you. She booty called me. <laughs> and so... You heard, it, you heard it here, folks. I mean, he just said it. 30-year gossip. 30-year-old gossip. Janet Jackson, booty called Bill Bellamy. But she was so nice to me, right? And, you know, I never forget, you know, when she threw a surprise birthday party for me because I was on tour with her. And, you know, she called me up and she was like, Bill, I want you to come out on a Velvet Road tour with me. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, you know, it'll be fun. Like, you're so funny. And it was just like, with the whispery voice. <laughs> she did have that baby whisper voice, like even even before Britney, right? Yeah, it's very whispery and sexy. But then when you see on stage, she be like, five, four, yeah, three, yeah. two, one, two, 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 two. I'm like, where is this chick, right? Like, who is, you know? <laughs> She's my top five. And then another one would be Michael as well. I interviewed Michael Jackson, uh, which was also crazy. He was the first artist to premiere his video on every network simultaneously. It was him and Janet. Scream. Oh, scream! Yeah, they were in the space. Maybe want to scream? I think it was. It's a big guy who directed that. Big guy, big guy. Somebody big. They spent like three, four million dollars back then. Oh, it's Mark Romanek. Right? Is that what it's Mark? Yeah. My other crazy interview that I think should be top five was Prince. I can't believe you interviewed Prince. I interviewed Prince, and this was what was crazy about that interview. 
this will be in my book. I'm going to expand on this story because Prince was at that time changed his name. I don't know if you remember, he became the symbol. To the symbol. Right. So I didn't know what to call the brother. I was like, is he stop signing? He... <laughs> That's when we were all calling him the artist formerly known as Prince. Because he didn't own the rights to his name. I never heard of no shit like that. I was like, people own your name? I'm like, I'm Bill Bellamy. Like, I own me, right? Mm. <laughs> he was the first person that made me understand the music game from another perspective because technically they do own your name. You can't just go, you sign with them. So Prince, the artist, is their artist. So everything about, I said, oh, shit. I never knew no shit like that. So so I'm sitting around kicking it with him. And this is the thing that's cool about Prince. He had a cool ass voice. Like you thought Prince would be like, Dilly Bilali, we got out of here today in this thing called dun, dun. The way he would sing and the way he would talk is so different. I thought he'd be like, the after well. <laughs> I'm like, so, you know, he would be like, how you doing, baby? Yeah, my real name is Raj. <laughs> Did he have his heels on? I loved that he wore such high yeah, heels. Yeah, he had, he had on heels, heel heels, and they had blinking lights in them. I'm like, where is... Oh, my God. So I, I just I just have to make sure I didn't miss something here. You and Janet did not date, or did you date? No, no, we never date. dated. Okay. No, we never dated. So we, just, we just skirted around it. Like, we just, like, we just, we were like two cats that, like, just purred around each other. So auditions, I want to know, who did you see at auditions in the 90s? Who was, like, your peer set that you were like, oh, you again, hi. Oh, man, Omar Epps. Uh, I ran into him all the time. Uh, I ran into Anthony Mackie. I ran into, these are all brothers, like when they said they want a chocolate brother. Ta-da! He's <laughs> <laughs> like, we want, we want a, we want a handsome chocolate brother. It's going to be Morris Chestnut. It's going to be Bill Bellamy. It's going to be Omar Epps. It's going to be Anthony Mackey. It's going to be um, Wesley Snipes. Yeah. Chris Rock. You know, all these guys that, because the thing with me was I could do drama or comedy, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would see on the comedy ones, I'd see Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle. We always like going for these funny roles. And then on the drama side, I'd just see Lorenz Tate. You know, it was just all, but but the thing to me was I was lightly, lightly intimidated by, you know, the dramatic guys because that's all they did. Mm -hmm. They, and they had been in movies or they were bubbling too. Like, you know, I came in like a spaceship rocket and just bombarded their, like, like it was like, I was a, a comic that just got picked. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Cause I mean, you, you end up in you're, you're in any given Sunday, you're in who's the man, you know, with, with Dennis Leary. Mm -hmm. When were you in a movie when you were like, I can't believe I made it this far. What movie was that? Any given Sunday, Oliver Stone, when I'm sitting in the meeting, when I was sitting in Oliver Stone's office talking about being in this film, that was crazy. Another moment like that was when um, I'm doing Love Jones and I'm sitting there at this table and I'm shooting this scene with Lorenz Tate and Neil Long and, you know, uh, Isaiah Washington. And I'm the only comedian at a table of all dramatic actors. And I am giving them the business. Was there a role that you auditioned for that you didn't get and you still are are like, damn it, I should have had that one. Still pissed. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, not not pissed, but I wanted to be. I wanted there was a role in uh, American Gangster that I wanted to play. I wanted to play uh, Denzel's uh, brother because I thought that would work. I was like, of course mm-hmm. I could be Denzel's brother. But then they asked me how tall I am. I said, I try. I said five four. Already, <laughs> <laughs> I always know I'm not gonna get the job when they go, Bill. How tall are you? I'm like, Fah! it's not happening. I, we can't let you go without talking about some music videos. You appeared in a video for both Debrat and Tupac Shakur. Let's definitely talk about the Tupac video. So the story behind the Tupac video is really interesting. The story is this. So um, Tupac was arrested and he was in prison at Rikers in New York City, correct? So at this time, I'm on MTV. I get a letter to this day. If I could go back and go through my fan mail, I promise you, I have a letter from Tupac Shakur. And it was his name. It was his cell number. I mean, his his uh, prison number, this, that, and the other, Rikers Island. He wrote me a letter. He was like, yo, Bill, man, I need a favor. I can't, you know, shoot my videos. So I'm asking all my friends to help me out. I got a concept I want to run by you and I want you to be in my, my music video. And so David Nelson directed this particular video and it was called Temptations. So each room was like, it was like a brothel. That was the concept. And Coolio, Coolio, Coolio was the guy, Coolio was the guy going through the hallway you know, just going to each room and each room was a vignette of some sort. So you'd have like Jada was in it, Jada, Salt and Pepper, you had Tretch. This is like WAP before WAP. Yeah, way, 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 way. <laughs> and this was like WAP overload. So I was in this fur bed. If you go back and look at it, I was in this fur bed. I was uh, with Jasmine Guy. Yeah, Whit- Whitley. I mean, Whitley was Whitley. In- Use Whitley her real name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like licking her and my toes are doing like this. So it was crazy. It was like a crazy video and it came off so well. Well, I cheated, will I be committed? Heaven knows getting weak and I want to hit it. So here I go with my ride in the morning. Have your children seen Temptation? I hope not. <laughs> and, and did you did you stay in touch with Tupac? Yes. We were very, very good friends. And so when he got out of jail, he gave me the exclusive mm-hmm. interview first over MTV News. What do you make of the, the Tupac alive or dead myth today? I mean, do you, do you reconcile that with like with love for him? Like, how do you reconcile that urban legend today? I just think his life was so prolific. He, he was like a James Dean, you know, um, he died young, too soon. He was very, very, very passionate and had an impact on, on the culture, white or black. If you were into music or hip hop, you knew who Tupac Shakur was. You heard about it, you know, whether you, you you was like, this dude is smart or this dude just got locked up again. What happened? Like he was all over the place. Like in these in days, like I would see Tupac in New York on Monday. He'd be having dinner, having a, a laughing, kicking it. You could turn on the news on Wednesday. He's in jail or he just dropped another song. Like it could go, <laughs> yeah. it was all over the place. Or then he could be in a cute little video, like I get around smiling. You know yeah. what I mean? It was he, he was the most unbelievable person. Like it was like nine different personalities in his body. I'm telling you. Do you have an opinion as to whether he's alive or dead? I don't think he's alive. No, no, no. I would I would love for him to be alive because he would have been fifty. Uh-huh. Oh wow. That's I think he would have been fifty. Ain't that crazy? Yeah. That is crazy. He, he was gone at twenty five. Think about this. If you had to be gone at twenty five, all the 
That's crazy. I, that blows my mind. He did so much. I can't believe 25. So many of the talent that in your top five, when you think about it, it's very sad. I mean, Michael, Kurt, Tupac, Prince, they're not, Janet's the only one who's left. Now that's a good point. You know, and, and so it just taught me, you know, that doing in the entertainment business is like live your moments, like hmm. embrace, embrace your opportunity. Like me, like, you know, people always say, Bill, you're so happy. You know, you're always like an upbeat dude, but I, I just live my life like that. I live my life enjoying my moments. Like, you know, like I don't want to ever be like taking it for granted. Like this interview is fun. You know, I get to tell you guys stuff that you probably didn't know about mm -hmm. me. You know what I mean? And it's, you know, so when I do my book, which I'm working on now, I just found a deal with Harper Collins. Oh, oh congratulations. That's going to be a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So when I get into my life and we go through these, these beats, you know, like people are going to be astounded by the, the stuff that I experienced. Cause it's going to sound like a movie. Cause when you read my book, you just going to be like, you got to be kidding. How could one person experience all this stuff? I still go, I can't believe it. And I did it. <laughs> Okay, a major thanks to Bill Bellamy, who has a nearly anthropological take on the 90s. Well, it's like we were fans of Bill Bellamy, but now we're co-vice presidents of his fan club. <laughs> like, I'm just promoting us from members of the fan club to co-vice presidents. We don't want to do the work of a president, of course. We just want to be the figureheads. And can I just objectify him for just a second? He's still, like, really hot. He might even be hotter. I think he's actually hotter. I think you're right. And here's the thing that's even more awesome on people in the 90s than being super hot is being super thoughtful. And Bill, um, as it turns out, had more to say about the life and death of Kurt Cobain. And so he actually called up our producer, Chris, and had more to say about it. And it's actually pretty beautiful. And so we're going to play it for you now. In hindsight, when I interviewed him, I mean, he was such a like introverted kind of dude. And it's, it's once a decade that you get an artist that is the voice of the people or the voice of the culture at that time. And there's a lot of kids that have struggled with mental health and that are struggling with it. And in the 90s, what I think Kurt was doing was doing, he was the voice of, the, of that feeling. You feel me? Yeah, I do. And, and on the line of MTV kind of being Instagram for Generation X, you know, I, I think MTV broke the story. Yeah, they did. They, they did. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. And, I, and to be curious to know if there is anything that you remember about MTV's coverage in particular or, you know, what it was like around the network when the, when the news broke. I just remember it was it, everybody was down. We really, really, really supported Nirvana's album. We really, really, really believed in that. And they got that record label push and they had that MTV push. They was on heavy rotation, bro. You know how many times I <laughs> had to introduce a motherfucking Nirvana video every day? I'm <laughs> 28 times a day, bro. And I had to come up with something new to say that I didn't say that last 27 times. I think there were probably five videos from that album alone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, you know, I, I think to sum up what I feel outside of saying he was gone too soon, he was about to be a voice of a generation of people that were struggling with things. And had he been able to live through it, he could have changed lives. I, I personally believe that because 
because yeah. he, it was so authentic. Well, Andrew Kurt Cobain's death, which of course is our cover story from this very week. And this may seem hyperbolic or even insensitive, but Kurt Cobain's death for the generation affected by it, his death was the JFK assassination. It was 9-11. It was earth shattering and paradigm shifting. And it's still a, you know, where were you moment? People really took it. You, the vigils, everything. Anytime, you know, somebody that big in pop culture's eyes, there's this outpouring of grief and almost hysteria. And what I thought was so interesting about going back and reading this cover story was kind of how graphic and detailed people was about telling his story. I think like mm. now it would have been softened a little. The way we handle mental illness would have been a little more, I don't know the word, polite. This was very blunt, mm. this coverage. And it was sad. It was really hard to read. There was something powerful. He did embody an entire generation. And I think a lot of it was because his lyrics were able to, you know, exactly articulate how people were feeling. And they were actually hearing someone say the thoughts that were in their head. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so when you go back and you read his lyrics, which we print a bunch of them in this article, they are nonsensical and yet make sense at the same time. Something about them just spoke to this generation. Like, I remember jumping around and singing Smells Like Teen Spirit. Oh my God, that's exactly what I was thinking about. I'm worse at what I do best, and for this little gift, I feel blessed. Right, like yearbook quote. You really forget, you know, one, how young he was, and how prolific he was, and how he had what seems to be, you know, from reading some of the interviews he gave and certainly his suicide note that he had that imposter syndrome thing we talked about today, right? Like he really had all of the success that he's not fully sure that he deserved. We should make the point that when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out in 1991, it was pretty much the opposite mood of all of the rock bands that were popular at the time. All the like girls, girls, <laughs> girls of it all. And my favorite, Guns N' Roses, who it was just this like sex, drugs and rock and roll vibe. Alternative rock was like coming up with bands like R.E.M. and U2, but it was the premiere of Smells Like Teen Spirit on MTV that ushered in the whole world of what they called grunge, which of course annoyed all of the musicians in Seattle. They were like, we're not grunge, man. Then the word grunge was just co-opted by like advertising agencies all over the world. And then it was like at Claire's, right? Yeah. But it didn't really matter what it was called because the point is it represented this edgier, angstier mainstream rock. It, it was the first time that this punk ethos that, that, you know, wear your heart on your sleeve kind of thing, it went commercial, right? It went, went beyond his control. When punk became alt rock, became grunge or whatever, you know, whatever you call it now, it became a movement and then it became a fashion movement. I mean, we both know, of course, about Mark Jacobs collection inspired by Nirvana and Seattle and grunge. It just all spun quickly out of his control. And then, then he ended up putting, you know, the, the Neil Young lyric in a suicide note, it's better to burn out and fade away. And then you had thousands and thousands and thousands and perhaps millions of people around the world mourning for an icon. What else should I be? In the article, we quote Ray Manzarek 
from the Doors. He was the Doors keyboardist, who, Mm -hmm. of course, was with Jim Morrison, who also died famously at 27, addiction issues. And he said Kurt didn't speak for his generation. He spoke for himself. Mm. That's what poets do. So it was like Kurt created this poetry music for himself people connected to it, took it on as their own. And then when he died, all of these fans were like, well, what does this mean for me? My feelings, what do I have now? Who's going to voice them for me? It really did define really the whole decade. I mean, everything from the music, the attitude to the look with the flannel and the way he dyed his hair and wore the nail polish, we still see these things in mm. rock stars today. And and I don't think any of it was deliberate. This was not a, a man who was looking to set trends. And yet look at what he did in terms of his lasting image and, and memory. Yeah. I mean, Bill stood there at the, I mean, can you believe he interviewed Kurt Cobain at the MTV Beach House? I mean, can you imagine what Cobain must have been thinking with all those people in, in swimsuits? I mean, Bill says like he's, he was there like in a ratty sweater and and Bellamy's like thinking, like, don't you know how famous you are? Like, don't you know how successful you are? If you go back and you watch the famous MTV Unplugged with Nirvana, mm. it was released November of 1994. And you get all those. You remember, they used to do all the awesome acoustic performances. Oh, God. Yeah. And you can see he's simultaneously like lost in his music, but also so tortured to be there. And singing in that Mm. way. And I think this People article uh, did an incredible job telling his story. And like I said, it was pretty kind of graphic and blunt. And, Mm. And I think it was appropriate, frankly, for the pain people were feeling when this happened. All right, Andrea, I'm going to need for you to turn to page 53 in your hymnal. Turning, turning. And it is about divorces. And it may be the single most 80s couple got divorced in the 90s. And of course, we're talking about Billy Joel and Christy Brinkley. Okay, before we even get into the actual article, I just want to make note of the deck, which is magazine speak for the subhead that comes under the main headline. And it says, surprise, Christy Brinkley and Billy Joel are calling it quits. No surprise. So are Shannon Doherty and Ashley Hamilton. So <laughs> we're going to just leave that here for one sec. Okay, okay, okay. And then we'll we'll make a hard left back to it um, in just a minute. Okay. So Christy and Billy, the Uptown Girl and the Piano Man. What happens, Jason? One person who has watched Brinkley closely suggests that Christy is ending the Mrs. Piano Man phase of her life. Quote, She was happy to be in his world, says the source, but I get a feeling she's just going to go for it. She's still got a great body, great looks, and great confidence. Wow. Um, (laughs) That doesn't explain anything about why they're getting divorced. And it's also... I just love that we had to bring her body and looks into it. But I mean, here's the thing. Here's what we're going to say. Like The fact is, still today, in 2021, Christy Brinkley has all three, I have to say. Then, just in case you wanted more about Christy and Billy Joel, we're not going to give it to you. Because, like I said, we make a very hard left and we go into the Doherty-Hamilton split. Which which is shocking, I have to say. I think there's like, you know, a, a gun involved and a BYOB ceremony 
and it's just like it's all so delightfully 90s you know i have to say with like supermodels and tv stars and random marriages and all that stuff which leads me to my ultimate question for you andrew we began this series of people in the 90s talking about our favorite power couples of the 90s i want to hear from you what are your favorite power divorces of the 90s? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. You know I love a good celebrity divorce. <laughs> She's been waiting for this question her entire life. And I know I sound gleeful, and that's because I am. But of course, these are heartbreaking and devastating for those involved, but for the rest of us. Ooh. Okay, so there was our girl, Paula Abdul and Emilio Estevez. They were married from oh. 92 to 94. Um, but it sounds like they're pretty amicable. Like she mentions him on our podcast. Shout out to our podcast. And it, and it seems okay. He was um, apparently on the plane when it crashed. Something Hot like that. Goss. Yeah. Um, another couple that I totally forgot about that divorced at the very beginning of the decade was Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum. <gasps> oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Right? Isn't that a good one? They were an awesome couple. Yeah, that was very good. Um, who are some of your favorites? And by favorites, of course, we mean very sad and devastating for those involved. Well, I mean, the one that I thought you were going to say is for me the ultimate, you know, couple of the 90s. So it was as if two garbage trucks collided in the middle of the night. And when I say that, I mean, when Carmen Electra married Dennis Rodman. <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with two garbage trucks, but on behalf of Carmen Electra and her fans everywhere, which I am, how dare you? Well, in, in a really awesome way. They're married for nine days. And like, it's, they're honestly a more 90s couple than the two of them. And I revere Carmen Electra almost as much as you do. I doubt that. <laughs> but you're saying that Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra's divorce was a bigger deal than Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson? I will say that rhetorical question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I'll stand down. Previously on Chasing Fabio. The most amazing thing happened. A woman with whom I worked at Glamour Magazine, she actually commented and said, I may be able to help you. She's like, here's the person to contact for Fabio. And guess who it is? Don't tell me. It's Eric. It's Eric Esquire and Marina Del Rey. So I did send him another email. He did actually respond and says, let's jump on the phone. Oh, my God. You weren't kidding when you told me the news was big. <sighs> yes, Jason, that's the sound of me <laughs> taking a cleansing breath mm. and centering myself before I ask you. Where are we on Chasing Fabio? Okay, well, Eric Esquire and Marina Del Rey actually took my phone call. So I did call once and he didn't answer. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I then, knew it. And then I did that thing where like, you know, I didn't want to leave a voicemail because if you leave a voicemail, you actually can't call back. <laughs> and so I just didn't leave a voicemail. And then I called right back and he answered. And he's like, who is this? Um, <laughs> So imagine me like having to then pitch all over again from the beginning as if I hadn't sent 43 unanswered emails to Eric <laughs> asking for Fabio's participation on this 90s podcast, but I did. So I started at the beginning mm -hmm. 
Because, I mean, we really have invested. I know people think we're making this up. We really have invested. No, my heart's like, racing a little. But here, I'm just going to cut to the chase. I have a clammy palm. Because after hearing all of that, he had one question. What? Can Fabio talk about how he uses a hyperbaric chamber to stay looking young? Meaning, wait a minute. <laughs> Meaning, yes, Fabio will come on your podcast as long as he... You can talk about whatever the hell he wants. <laughs> You're kidding. Yes. Anyway, so, so to make a long story really short, we actually were getting Fabio on the podcast. I guess I thought it would feel different. <laughs> I don't know how I feel. I was so ready to console you. I feel a little panicked now because like, what are we going to talk about? Well, we know what we're going to talk about, Jason. <laughs> we're going to talk about hyperbaric chambers, goddammit, from start to finish. Who yep. cares? So this is really happening. This is actually happening. So mark your calendars because I have kind of an idea that, again, we're going to have to run past editor-in-chief Dan Whiteford. I kind of think that you should fly to L.A., A, because I've never met you, and B, because I think that we should do this, like, you know, live to tape, as it were. And I think we should, like, be in studio interviewing Fabio together. No one is going to approve <laughs> this, okay? I, by the way, in case you listeners don't know, I live on the East Coast. Jason's in L.A., Fabio, I guess, is not living on his own planet of linen shirts. He, I, I'm assuming he lives in L.A. He lives area. in L.A., yeah. Um, okay, 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 okay. I didn't expect for this to happen. So I need for you to get a plane ticket. I think I need for you to get out here. And a babysitter. Okay. We're, we're, get a babysitter. I, I'm going to okay. buy you some wine at the Sunset Tower. It's going to be fabulous. Oh, my God. We're getting yes. giddy. So we got, <laughs> like, we booked him. It's, like, done. I just have to say, I really didn't think you would succeed. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. We're getting Fabio, it's <laughs> on. It's on. What am I going to wear? All right, Andrew, one last thing. On page nine of this very issue from 1994 in Star Treks, which I guess is just like, you know, on the street shots of famous people being famous. There's a picture of John Corbett and Jason Priestley, like two studs hanging out. Studs, Jason. I no mean, one's I'm, used that word since. Do I sound like, really? Do I sound really old when I say studs? No, we're okay. it's like nineties. It's fine. <laughs> Let's just tell everybody that in the nineties, everyone was throwing studs around. I kind of like the word stud. Anyway, I I thought they were studs. Certainly, nineteen ninety four for sure. And so there they are. And some of these guys from the nineties are actually hotter now. And is it possible that some of these guys are hotter some thirty years later? Absolutely. Think about like James Marsden, James Vanderbeek, Usher, Joshua Jackson. Hello, <gasps> Pacey. Like Pacey looks so much better today. Tyrese. Okay, I'm not into the Fast and the Furious, but I'm into Tyrese. Okay, Ricky Martin, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, totally. That's fair. Casper Van Dien. Whoa, <laughs> deep wrath. Deep wrath. Starship Troopers was everything. <laughs> We're just trying to think of every actor we know with three names because they're our favorite. Yeah. Mark Paul Gossler, John Stamos, of course. Yeah, gold standard. Uh, anyway, I think the point after rattling off all of these names is that 90s studs only got hotter as the decades went on. I mean, Andrea, I couldn't help but wonder what do Beavis and Butthead look like? 
I don't think anything could make those two attractive, <laughs> even 25 years. Beavis and Butthead's glow up. I mean, that's so 90s. <laughs> Thanks again to Bill Bellamy. I mean, can I just say what a delight. Thanks to him for really bringing like the energy and the stories and really just being a gem. I know. I kind of like really love him and like am still, still not over the fact that he created Booty Call. Like we all say Booty Call because of Bill Bellamy. And got Booty Called by Janet Jackson. Legend. (gasps) I mean, hello. People in the 90s is hosted by me, Jason Sheeler, and Andrea Laventhal. It's produced by Jason Sheeler and Chris Jacobs. Executive produced by Kim Rittberg and David Flumenbaum. Edited by Chris Jacobs. Mastered by Erica Wong. And with production support by Elisa Sessler at People, Persia Verlin, Matt Sav, and Rachel King at Pod People. I'm Andrea Laventhal. Thank you for listening. And I'm Jason Sheeler. <laughs>